zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Bushido Blade, released June 19th, 1981. It was written by William Overgaard, directed by Sugunobu Katani, produced by Rankin Bass, and released by Aquarius Releasing. Rankin Bass. Classic. Rankin Bass. So that's uh, this episode drops on Christmas, so we got you a Rankin Bass special. We yeah. themed it on, on purpose. Perfect. 100% fully animated. Right. The late 70s saw an increase in the demand for stories involving Japanese history, which we covered extensively last year with Akira Kurosawa's Kagemusha, and which would reach a peak in the U.S. in 1980 with the popular miniseries Shogun, starring Richard Chamberlain. Intending to capitalize on this trend, Rankin Bass put together plans for the Bushido Blade, an alternate history story that blended the real-life Commodore Matthew Perry's visits to Japan in pursuit of a treaty with the basic plot of 1971's Red Sun, a spaghetti western about a gang stealing a ceremonial Japanese sword from an ambassador to Japan that was meant as a gift for the American president, prompting a manhunt. Yeah, they didn't change that at all, huh? No, not much. Although that one takes place in the U.S. And I think the people who steal it are a gang in the U.S. of Americans. Okay. But I haven't seen it, so I don't know for sure. There's a Briscoe County Jr. episode like this, too. Oh, is there? But they st- they're they stealing a ceremonial prize bull from Spain. Uh, There's a MacGyver good. episode, too, where they steal a jade dragon. Oh, that's right. Red Sun stars Charles Bronson in the lead and Toshiro Mifune, who would go on to star in both the Bushido Blade and the Shogun miniseries. Bushido Blade was shot in 78, but didn't hit theaters until a limited release in 1981, by which time Richard Boone, who plays Commodore Perry, had passed away from throat cancer. The version we watched is an edited version, 12 minutes shorter than a version entitled The Bloody Bushido Blade. Oh, darn. I can only assume that the 12 minutes are graphic violence since the version we watched, evidently recorded from a German cable broadcast, was (laughs) mostly bloodless. (laughs) Actually, I think it's a a German DVD. But it had had Portuguese Portuguese subtitles. subtitles. (laughs) But it's in English. Yeah. So I don't get it. Yeah, and only the only the English speaking parts were subtitled in Portuguese. The Japanese speaking parts were not. Yeah, so That's there's four scary. languages at play here. Uh, there were still significant head cutting off scenes. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. there's there's definitely more violent stuff too. But I feel like there must just be more blood in that other version. Maybe. We open on a fluttering American flag. It doesn't look like any real flag pattern that I could find, but careful pausing yielded a guesstimate of around 31 stars meaning that this is just after the admission of California, so between July 4th, 1851, and July 3rd, 1858, the flag is being flown from a group of ships led by Richard Boone as Commodore Matthew Perry, who reads us a ship log, dated right in the middle of the span of time I wasted effort determining. (laughs) I was going to say, didn't a date come onto screen like in a few seconds? (laughs) Ship's log, February 18, 1854, U.S. Navy Far East Squadron. Matthew Perry commanding. Could you be any more Matthew Perry? (laughs) (laughs) I would have preferred that version of this, though. Yeah, With Matthew Matthew Perry Perry playing Matthew Perry? Yeah. Maybe just all the cast of Friends. That'd be great. Yeah. 
As he looks at Mount Fuji through a telescope, Perry explains that they're here in pursuit of a treaty to open diplomatic relations with Japan. Japan has spent centuries in a sort of self-exile. Opening the country to American visitors was the decision of the Shogun, Japan's absolute ruler, but there are rival factions who would rather Japan kept its doors closed. We see, I thought, the Shogun being marched through the rain when mm -hmm. they are ambushed by what appears to be bowing peasants until they all draw swords. The Shogun's litter bearers set him down in the road to fend off the attack, but they are quickly slaughtered, and a katana is stabbed through the litter, drawing a fountain of blood from inside. The man in the litter is dragged out and beheaded in the street, and they run down the path with his head on a sword. So, who is he? I don't know. I thought it was the Shogun, but they don't talk about the Shogun being dead for the whole rest mm -hmm. of the movie. Hmm. Clearly someone important if he has litter bearers, but no idea who this was. We cut back to the ship's POV of Mount Fuji, and we dissolve to a hokusai painting of waves crashing before Mount Fuji for the title card. It ends with a shogun helmet gripping a sheathed katana, presumably the titular blade, and we see other traditional Japanese art for a set of alphabetical opening credits. I hate alphabetical <laughs> opening credits. I, I want the characters' names in order of importance to the story. That's how I always want it in every mm -hmm. movie, and this alphabetical shit drives me crazy. The last painting in the set is of American ships on the water and people standing on the beach in the foreground, and then we dissolve to a live-action version of the same scene. It's nighttime now, and the camera drifts into the open-air tent where Perry is seated beside the Shogun's commander, as played by Toshiro Mifuni. The Americans are clearly picking the music because it's all southern fiddly stuff. Commodore Perry claps his hands hard to kick off a performance on the balcony above them of Camp Town Races by a troop of men in blackface with Afro wigs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Rankin Bass. <laughs> oh, this is like just after the credits where I'm like, oh, okay, so James Earl Jones is in this movie. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't watch it. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't even see that scene. Read that yeah. part of the script. <laughs> the Americans all clap along enthusiastically while the Japanese diplomats appear bewildered by the show. On the sidelines, we're introduced to midshipman Robin Burr, a relatively young man who was granted permission to join the military on the condition that he be stationed alongside his uncle, Boson Cave Johnson. And Cave Johnson is J.K. Simmons' character in the Portal series. Is <laughs> it really? Names. Yeah, his name is Cave Johnson. As a reference to this, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I can <laughs> how only... How could it not be? Yeah, how, I've never heard the name Cave Johnson outside of Portal. <laughs> <laughs> and he's played here by the gas man himself, Mike Starr. How the hell did they know that I got gas? Burr seems off-put by his uncle's drunken behavior. Perry and the Shogun's commander sit still for 30 seconds as a daguerreotype is developed. This is truly amazing. A box that captures your image. Um, that is a daguerreotype, and we are very honored to bring to your country the first camera. The gifts you have brought are too much. It's not the first camera. It's your country's first camera. Yeah. Along with the camera, they have made gifts of a miniature steam-powered locomotive and the technology of telegraphs. The Shogun's commander worries that they have little to offer in return. Digging deep, he comes up with something comparable. The Bushido Blade, a weapon of great cultural significance. Commodore Perry laughs in his face like it's the dumbest fucking gift he's ever heard of. Yeah. Mm. It's like, you, you brought a train, a model train, and you're scoffing at a blade? Yeah, this is a children's toy, essentially. The Shogun's commander even takes pains to explain what makes this weapon so valuable, but Perry is still like, whatever, cheers. Like, what a dick. I know, like, he's a monster for the whole movie. Even if, e e I mean, like, even if he wasn't, like, 
culturally sensitive to like this is important to you like yeah. can't you just look at something and be like i appreciate the craftsmanship yeah i don't know what that's mm-hmm. for who yeah. elected <laughs> this guy ambassador if he's this tasteless in yeah. his interactions we cut to the sword and later that night more rebels watch from the bushes as the shogun's men enjoy the american gifts riding the miniature train around a small track and sending electronic messages at the speed of light a rebel baron zen sneaks into the shogun's trophy room and steals the Bushido blade, laying waste to multiple guards, American and Japanese, on his way out of the building. Back in the tent, Perry and the Shogun's commander announce to the party that the treaty will be signed the following afternoon, too much applause. We see men already drawing schematics trying to reverse engineer the American gifts, when suddenly, guards rush screaming into the room to announce the theft of the Bushido blade and the dead guards. The Shogun's commander, based on witness testimony, concludes that this thief, was a member of the Mito clan sent by Lord Yamato. Yamato leads the rebels who wish to keep Japan closed. Whenever Commodore Perry speaks to the Shogun's commander, he waves his arms around like he's doing sign language or something, but it just looks very weird. It's like he's conducting a symphony behind him. He just can't help but move his arms around every time he talks. I'm not sure what to do with my hands. Uh, be good just to hold them down by okay. your side. Yeah, great. I feel like it's like one of those things where you just you know, speak louder when people don't right. understand your language. It's like, well, maybe if I wiggle my hands around, he'll gesturing get gesturing in his face. <laughs> Perry doesn't understand why they would even bother taking this shitty sword that he doesn't even want, but the <laughs> commander says that it was their gift to the American president and it has been taken to spite them. They seek to embarrass us. The sword is not important. The only thing that's important is the signing of that treaty. The commander apologizes for the disruption, but refuses to move forward with the treaty until the blade is recovered to spare the Shogun the embarrassment. He forbids the Americans from attempting to retrieve it, instead calling on Prince Ito, played by Sonny Chiba, to avenge his fallen men. If he fails, he promises to die, and the commander promises to take his own life as well. Perry is livid with these men's proclamations of suicidal intent, reminding them often and loudly that he does not give a flying fuck about the (laughs) stupid sword. They assume the blade is at Yamato's castle, but they remind the Americans not to interfere or risk losing the treaty altogether. Captain Hawk on the American side follows Perry to his quarters on the lead ship. The president has given them to the end of April to return, treaty in hand, or the Russians will likely move in to take their place. Hawk offers to follow Prince Ito and take up the mission should he fail. Perry reminds Hawk that the Shogun's commander specifically forbid them from pursuing the sword, and Hawk reminds Perry that they don't give a shit about the Japanese, and as Americans, they can do whatever they want, anywhere they please. Isn't that counterintuitive to the whole treaty that they're probably about yeah, to sign? <laughs> you would think, right? As a consolation, Hawk offers to pretend to get lost on his way to capturing Yamato's palace. He asks for 10 Marines to accompany him, and Perry offers him two Navy men. So uh, at this point, I feel like is when I started, like, googling and i'm like okay when did japan actually open up its borders like was it was america the first ones over there inside a trio oh matthew perry real person oh that's why they cast this guy did mm-hmm. you did you look he up looks a exactly like yeah. richard he boone. looks exactly yeah, yeah, like yeah. him <laughs> there had to be a reason they cast richard boone well and, and the dutch though had been allowed to trade there for a long time right and at the same time as america was touching base russia and britain were showing up with their own mm-hmm. contracts and treaties Hawk calls Cave Johnson in and asks if his nephew Burr is up to the task. Burr's handle on the Japanese language could be most helpful. Johnson is obviously concerned about the thought of approving his nephew for active duty, especially since they're serving together specifically so Johnson can keep Burr safe. Johnson is then relieved to learn that alongside Burr, 
He himself has been chosen for the mission. The Americans plan to leave at night, and a guide tells them that Prince Ito left in search of the sword two hours ago, so they rush to catch up. They find a farmer who tells them the prince went through a local village, and again they follow the trail. The village seems empty when suddenly rooftop ninjas are tossing nets down over their heads and blocking all the roads with carts. Somehow they lose track of Burr, and Captain Hawk orders Johnson to find him before jumping over a roadblock cart. As the ninjas chase Johnson with their katanas, Hawk kills one with his gun. Do you guys recall the last time we saw somebody bring a sword to a gunfight? Indiana Jones? Our previous episode, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, that took way too long. <laughs> All Johnson finds is Burr's hat, and then we see a pack of ninjas carrying away an unconscious or possibly dead Burr. Like, I was like, oh, that, they got him unconscious and they're going to keep him prisoner. And then they walk to the middle of a bridge and they throw him off into the water, unconscious. So I was like, yeah. oh, okay, then he's for sure dead. Well, I thought that they had tied him to, like, a rock or something. <laughs> you know, it's just like... Just this, like, we're rolling up in a carpet and throw him off a bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what was the plan? Just to throw him away? Just kill him. I'll go get my gun right now. <laughs> but apparently not. Later we see the same man floating down the stream with his head above water, gripping a board that he somehow found, or a log. I don't know what this thing is. He's pulled from the river by a group of Japanese fishermen in canoes. The next morning, Hawk is coming around a large rock formation when he sees a bunch of men swarming a small hut in a field. A single swordsman, Prince Ito, emerges and capably fends the men off. Hawk lends the prince an unsolicited hand by shooting one of his attackers in the back and the rest scatter. Hawk and Ido meet and Ido is impressed by Hawk's weaponry. We have guns, matchlocks, but nothing like this. These guns were designed for the Texas Rangers, their death to Indians or samurai. Hawk tells Ido they can work together or they can fight now and Ido sheaths his sword. Johnson's hunt for Burr is getting nowhere. He doesn't know the language, and he quickly finds himself surrounded and captured by more rebels. I don't even know if they're rebels. I think they're just... Yamato's like, men? Or or I think they're just like, hey, who are you? Go to jail. Go to jail. <laughs> go directly to jail. <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's like Do not pass go. Yeah, you're, you're not from here. <laughs> He's taken to a building with other captured English speakers who are shocked to learn that the Americans have been invited to anchor ships in Yokohama Bay. Some of them have been here for over two years, and the lead prisoner, played by James Earl Jones, is ecstatic to hear that a treaty is nearly signed. I have to assume Jones was here for one day, maximum. Yeah. He was just on vacation in right. Japan. He was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> he was just doing press for Empire, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm around. I'll come and do that. Did he do any voices for the, the, the Hobbit films or anything? Not that I saw, no. We cut away to Burr waking up in the bed of a private home as a woman prepares morning tea for him. He tells her in his limited Japanese that he is freezing, and she strips down and climbs under the blankets with him. He shivers and holds her tight, and we cut to Hawk and Ido crossing a river on horseback when gunshots ring out. They change course, running alongside the water, when several swordsmen come rushing out of the woods to attack them. Hawk and Ido do their best to fend off the attack, but Ido is shot off of his horse. Hawk watches as the Japanese rifleman in the trees slowly reloads, and he manages to pick off the gunman before he can shoot again. Back at the home where Burr is recovering, the woman climbs out of his bed to redress, and we cut to the James Earl Jones prisoner, who wants to know how Johnson ended up here if things are going so smoothly with the Shogun. So are we to understand that more happened than just a little bit of warmth exchange? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I think it was just... Just warmth. Just a little boob press. 
Johnson readily admits to the secret sword recovery mission, including their intention to infiltrate the castle of Lord Yamato. The prisoner tells him the castle is 18 miles away overlooking the sea. The guards enter the room and start dragging the men out for their weekly baths. The joke here seems to be that the Japanese people are being judged as backward for bathing so often. Once a week! Crazy for bathing out of all the time. But my God, don't they know it's unhealthy? What's more, the men and women bathe together. I said I'll do it. We cut to the bathhouse where, rather than submit to a pleasant bath, Johnson organizes a mutiny and the prisoners turn on their captors. He organizes it by saying, just like, Attack! Let's have a fight. He's like, yeah. okay, let's He's do it. He's basically like, why aren't we fighting these people? And they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> we didn't notice. We outnumber them four to one. <laughs> Johnson wrestles a man through a wall into the women's showering area, and they scream, frightened by the intrusion. Johnson kicks the bars off the window of the lady shower and makes a run for it. And for a second, I thought he punched a woman. <laughs> like, I, I, I rewound it like four times. It, it must be one of the male guards. Yeah. But when he punches, just before he punches out the bars, he turns around and socks somebody else just in the face. Just a naked lady. <laughs> I was like, did he just punch some lady for no reason? I hate this place. We cut back to Hawk and Prince Ito arriving at a shrine in the forest. Hopefully it's not a major test of strength because Ito doesn't seem to have it in him today. <laughs> Inside the shrine, Hawk uses a knife to dig a bullet out of Prince Ito's shoulder. Hawk hears a sound outside and notices a woman armed with, I think, a stick in the woods. It looks like she's just swinging a stick around. We cut back to Burr awakening again in the bedroom to people talking outside his window. He steps over to see fishermen that plucked him from the river and one comes into the home and happens to speak English. He tells a story from his childhood about being lost at sea and rescued by an American whaling ship. Burr also shares their secret plan, seeking out Lord Yamato's castle, and the man warns him against upsetting Yamato, who might take out his anger on this village. What's Yamato with you? <laughs> <laughs> I got another terrible Yamato pun later. <laughs> oh, good. Coming up Sorry. later. I was Sorry, worried we would only have one. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's much worse. <laughs> We see Johnson stumbling full speed through a village at night and then ducking into a hiding spot when he hears a procession of people with baskets over their heads. Why do these people have baskets over their heads as they're marching along? Just for the convenience of the plot, I guess? Uh, I guess. It might, I mean, it kind of reminded me of... Uh, like, like big, big trouble, trouble with the, China. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. hats that come all the way down over their yeah. face. Cave blows a small whistle so precisely as to only draw the attention of the last man in the parade and predictably he grabs the man to steal his outfit. Back at the shrine, Hawk is boiling water for tea over a campfire. The woman with them, who will come to know as Tomo, claims to be Prince Ito's cousin. Hawk asks about her ethnicity, and she explains that she is only half Japanese. The actress, Laura Gemser, is Indonesian Dutch. She says her mother killed herself when she was born, rather than face the shame of a half-breed daughter. She stayed with her father until he was killed, and then she was adopted by her mother's samurai family as a cousin to the prince. She tells Hawk that she must avenge the guilt of her western blood, and he takes offense on behalf of what he considers the modern world, bragging about trains, factories, and skyscrapers, all the terrible crap they invented. Thousands of new things every day, making work for everybody. Oh good, making work. <laughs> good. good job. We cut back to Burr, who is standing waist-deep in a river as his lady caretaker splashes him with water, laughing hysterically. The English-speaking villager, Enjiro, finds them here. He's being played by Mako, by the way. He informs Burr that Yamato's samurai have entered the village inquiring about him, and he should leave soon. He advises Yuki, the girl, to lead him somewhere safe. We cut back to Johnson, 
somehow blending in in a village, even removing the basket from his head to reveal a giant white face with bright red hair. He encounters a squad of sumo wrestlers. Well, well what in the devil have you fellas been eating? They challenge him to a show of strength, lifting huge fabric bundles in the air. To show off, Johnson spots a much bigger bundle and lifts that over his head, eliciting an applause from the crowd. Round two of this unspoken contest is apparently a sumo match. Johnson, with zero experience in the sport, seems to understand the rules completely and tosses his competitor out of the ring. Although they both fall out at the same time, so I don't yeah. know how that's scored. Well, th this is this is the only part of the movie that I kind of really liked. Yeah, I would have just liked watch Mike Starr just go around and be weird in Japan. Yeah, uh, because they they tumble out of the ring and they're both laughing together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, oh, look, they found a common ground. He like should be the ambassador. <laughs> Back at the shrine, Tomo, the lady samurai, says they cannot wait much longer to approach the castle. Hawk asks for a short break before they leave and she offers him a back massage, balancing her feet carefully across his spine because they just tried to squeeze every single Japanese thing they could think of into mm -hmm. this Is one. Is that a Japanese thing? Yeah. Walking on walking on your back? Yeah, there's like a bar across the ceiling and they hold onto it and they stand on your back. Oh, I, I mean like I walk on your back all the time. I didn't know it was like a thing. Hey, if you don't have people walking <laughs> on your back, you're missing out. That's all I have to say. Find someone who will walk on your back that won't break it and you're good. When she steps off his back, it's clear that Hawk racistly assumed there would be more to this massage, and he picks up a small twig to just tickle the back of her leg, and she just looks generally annoyed by it. Prince Ido calls him into the shrine. Ido credits Hawk with saving his life and grants him the title of samurai, along with his own katana. Hawk seems moved by the gesture, and Tomo insists again that they be on their way. Hawk suggests they leave food for Ido, but Tomo says that samurai don't feel hunger, and they leave. <laughs> I wanted Prince Ido to just starve to death in this shrine. <laughs> in no time, they reach the castle, which seems largely unguarded. As they finish scaling an outer wall, we see men hiding and the first hints of an ambush. Yeah, this this was like my stupid pun, and I don't even know why I thought of it. <laughs> but I put Halloween hassle at Yamato's castle. Halloween hassle? What? <laughs> it's a really obscure reference to a Scooby-Doo movie. What? <laughs> I like it. I'll allow it. Because <laughs> it was the, the Scooby Doo is Halloween hassle at Dracula's castle. Oh. And for some reason, I was thinking Yamato's castle. I just the cadence of it. The, it's perfect. This fit, it's, it was really dumb. But that was it. There you go. There it is, folks. <laughs> it was worth the wait. <laughs> what was the name of that castle show? Castle. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Japanese castle show that it was Takeshi's like, castle. There you go. Yeah, that's good. Okay. I was more of a fan of Eureka's castle. Eureka's castle. <laughs> Tomo mentions that she asks someone who works in the palace to leave a sign for them on an unlocked entryway, and they notice a rose tucked into a set of double doors. They slowly creep through the doors, calling for Mitsu, Tomo's contact on the inside. Suddenly, we see Mitsu's face, looking quite pale in the darkness, and as the lights come up, it becomes clear that Mitsu has been decapitated, and her head is being dangled by the hair by a pack of ninjas who spring into action. Hawk and Tomo are quickly captured. Back in Commodore Perry's quarters on his ship, the Shogun's commander is paying him an unofficial visit. Richard Boone is so awkward with his hands in every scene, and he keeps gesticulating wildly. The commander informs him that Ito has been shot and the Americans are missing. He elaborates on their troubles by pointing out that neither man can admit to their country what they have allowed to happen here, and to make matters worse, there are Russian ships inbound. I don't know why 
the commander cares that much about it. It's just another country here with gifts for mm-hmm. you. The commander admits that they could avert disaster by signing the treaty without the sword, but he would have to commit seppuku to spare his shogun the embarrassment. We cut to Hawk waking up naked under a blanket in a cell. He looks out the window and sees Mitsu's head on a pike below. Hawk asks for his clothing and saber back, and they offer him what sounds like an apology because they didn't realize he was a samurai when he was captured, but none of the Japanese dialogue is translated in the subtitles, so I don't know what they said to him. Neither does he. Hawk is presented to Yamato. In the name of the U.S. government, President Franklin Pierce and Commodore Perry, I demand the return of the stolen sword, the Bushido blade, under the threat of harsh reprisals. Yamato laughs in his face and advises him in English that he can have the Bushido blade if he agrees to a duel with Yamato's champion. We tilt down from a shot of Mount Fuji to a waterfall. I think just to remind us, we shot on location. Let's get a shot of Mount Fuji. (laughs) Burr and his caretaker Yuki are still on the run together. They are discovered by Burr's uncle, Johnson. But Burr tries to keep the reunion professional, fighting away a hug and asking for Hawk's whereabouts. Uncle, nephew, Yuki, and the English-speaking villager and Jiro all hop in a boat together and paddle away. They stop the boat on a beach, and Burr tells Yuki that he will try to find her again when all this is over, and he thanks her for her help. But he gives her, like, a watch yeah. that's got a picture of himself in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Why did you have this? Yeah, do you just carry around pictures of yourself in a watch just for funsies? Like, what? what is this for? Are you waiting to find a girl to give it to? Like, why? I, maybe it's like if it gets lost. Like, if, <laughs> if lost... This watch belongs to... <laughs> to that's this good. Gentleman. The two part ways on the beach. Back at Yamato's palace, Hawk is enjoying a meal when Tomo comes in to see him with tea. She tells him that it is their custom to fuck before battle. Tomo offers to give him some last-minute fight training first, and Hawk waves off the lesson pretty quickly, preferring to rely on his own fencing education. Like, nah, I'm an American, I can do everything. Let's go back to the other thing you talked about. <laughs> I feel like those two styles would not be compatible no, at all. No, not at all. Not at all. No. Though he does have some lingering questions. Why do they carry two swords anyway? What's a smaller one for? To cut off the head. As a trophy. He calls the custom barbaric, but she assures him that's the reality of the fight that he's agreed to. Hawk tells her to stop warning him and start sleeping with him. She strips down and joins him on a futon, and the score here almost has a hint of Beauty and the Beast to it. Enjiro leads Burr and Johnson to the edge of the palace and offers to go in first on his own since the Americans would not be welcomed. And while they argue about it, Prince Ito appears. Hawk's battle with the champion begins. The champion is actually using the Bushido blade for the fight. They clash several times and suddenly Hawk is distracted by a tremendous rumbling in the trees. Surprisingly, the men seem evenly matched. Tomo can't watch the match and stands to walk away. We see her doing something but she's obscured by the slats of a fence, and Yamato's champion gets the upper hand, slashing Hawk's buttons from his shirt and tearing a large gash in his shoulder through the sleeve. Hawk is disarmed and rolls around on the ground trying to get back to his saber when Tomo comes running from the sidelines. Hawk grabs his opponent by the arm and holds it outstretched until Tomo can reach them, bringing her own weapon down and somehow only lopping off the challenger's hand, despite their arms being side by side when she slices at them. This seems like, it seems weird to me. Like a weird choice to, like, after, like, this entire movie about honor Mm -hmm. and, like, 
you know, and whatnot to, to just come in and have even one of the Japanese characters, like, cheat. Yeah. Like, it seems really weird. Well, uh, I have a theory. Uh, and I Let's will hear. reveal this theory now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the buildup. Just tell us. I think COVID is a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so while Hawk is fighting the champion, there is a moment where the champion is subdued and, and almost appears to yield. And Hawk takes a moment to think, like, is he yielding? And that's when the champion kind of swipes him away and cuts off his buttons. Oh, okay. And that's when the rumbling starts. And because of what's going to happen next with this rumbling and this earthquake, I think we're supposed to think that there's some kind of spiritual thing happening here. Like or, God is angry at him for not submitting? Right. That, that he he faked submission and he was going to spare him, but then he used it as a as a means of attack. Yeah. Uh, so, so nature fought back. Yeah. Okay. And so her cheating to me is just like, oh, no, he already he's already cheating. Right. Mm. Uh, so I'm just going to end this and we're going to get the hell out I of here. I think if you look at just the rules of the fight, though, only one person is cheating. Yeah. And she just ran into the middle of a fight she was not involved with and cut off a competitor's hand. Yeah. She tells Hawk to take the sword from the cut off hand and run. Guards are sent after Hawk and Tomo for cheating in the contest while the champion collapses surprisingly bloodlessly in the yard. Although maybe there's just 12 minutes of blood spurting on this guy's <laughs> arm in the other version. As Hawk and Tomo escape, the palace is rattled again by what must be an earthquake. Maybe it's hot hail. Ming the Merciless is just pressing buttons up there as he watches the fight. <laughs> Hawk fights off the pursuing guards with his saber. He and Tomo turn around to watch from dangerously close as the enormous walls of the castle come crashing down. Despite having fought admirably and lost the fight only on account of Tomo's illegal intervention, the champion commits seppuku and is beheaded in the courtyard. So I felt really bad for this guy. Well, but see, that that happens, and the moment that is completed, the earthquake stops. Oh, interesting. And and even uh, Hawk says, oh, that's funny, it just stopped all of a sudden. So I think that, mm-hmm. to me, I think that there was some kind of spiritual, magical thing that was supposed to be happening, but it's not elaborated. Right. Like, they never say it, it's never really acknowledged. That's just my interpretation of I'm gonna go with it with an earthquake that happens to come by all of a sudden hawk deals with one last pack of guards on their way to a nearby lighthouse and some last minute assistance in the form of ito burr and johnson arrives they all leave together for the lighthouse but it's basically a dead end it would take too long to climb down the cliff face and it's too steep for their horses I don't. I don't get this. It's I don't like, either. Like it would take too long. It's like no. It would take take too long for what? For what? What yeah. are you talking about? That's a direction we can go in. It would take them just as long to follow us. Yamato's soldiers are on approach, and Ito is ready for battle. It is time to stand and fight. Ito takes the lead, and Hawk takes anybody who gets past him. Ito capably fights off a dozen men before one pierces him through the back. Even with a katana protruding from his chest, he slashes at more enemies. Ultimately, the enemy retreats, and only then does Ito fall, face first to the ground with a sword sticking out of his chest. I wanted it to just pop up out of the back. Yeah. There's no saving him this time. Instead of returning to parry with the sword, they decide to stay the night at the lighthouse. What? You're not even under attack now. Climb down the cliff face, get in a boat, go to your ships. Right. Like there's, that's, there's, that's, nothing yeah. there's nothing keeping you There's nothing left there. to do. That That's all that they have to do. Like, don't stop until you get there. When Burr points out they should be leaving... Hawk gives him the sword and says, you take the sword back. I'm going to stay here and fend off never-ending waves of angry samurai for no apparent reason. Why? 
I don't get it. I don't understand this whole third act makes no sense to me. If anything, they should have split up and like to to lure the samurai away. Right, so like, that the sword is safe on its yeah. journey back to the ship. Johnson tells Burr to follow the captain's orders and Hawk also orders him to take Injiro with him. When the Commodore asks about you, what should I say? Tell him last you saw us, we were serving our country as we saw fit. What is even the plan here? This is Yamato's territory. You're just going to stand here and fight Yamato's people forever? Yeah, I don't get it either. Because, like, is the Commodore not going to have a follow-up question? Like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do they think was uh, was important? Why didn't they come with you? Is he dead? I have paperwork to do if he died. <laughs> I'm just going to put dead. <laughs> that night, Johnson, Tomo, and Hawk take turns keeping watch from the top of the lighthouse. The top floor is loaded with fuel for the lamp which Johnson initially mistakes for sake, but is corrected before he can take a sip. Oh, what's this? Sake? I could use some grog. Probably would have been funnier to just let him drink it and be like, man, you Japanese don't mess around. (laughs) (laughs) In the middle of the night, the structure is quickly and predictably surrounded by Yamato's men. When one climbs to the top to attack, Tomo smashes a lit jar of fuel in his face and he tumbles in flames back to the other fighters. Point-blank Molotov cocktails are not the ideal weapon for use from inside of a wooden lighthouse. Full of fuel. Right. Again, Yamato's men attempt a retreat, but Yamato is here in person now. He circles the men around to come back to the lighthouse. The three of them square off against maybe 50 soldiers on horseback, but courteously the enemy agree to fight one-on-one throughout the battle. Yamato knocks Tomo to the ground and laughs at her until she whips out her short sword, not innuendo, and throws it at him like a dart piercing him completely through the neck. Their master killed, the remaining samurai turn to dust and float away on the breeze. That, that didn't no. happen. No, <laughs> that the next shot is of Burr and Injiro on the beach below the lighthouse, and it seems to imply that they've been waiting down here just to watch the fight from an impossible angle. Like, aren't they stalling for you, if yeah. anything? Like, it's been hours since you here. left, and you're still here, right below the lighthouse. If they all left together, they could have all gotten on the boat. Right. When they decide the battle is over, they are on their way. They spot Yuki with the boat and board it. They find the American ships, seemingly ready to leave, and then we dissolve to Perry's quarters again, where the treaty is apparently being signed. Well, uh, yeah, it's like they see the ships heading out to sea first, and they're always like, we're not going to make it. It's like, don't worry, the, the tide is changing. And then just cut to, they're on the boat. It's right. like, uh, what, was, what that, was the point of that? Yeah, just just show them going towards the boat and then cut to the boat. Well, right. Why, why this attempt to try to think that they won't make it? Perry must have decided that it was worth the life of the Shogun's commander to get this signature taken care of. He even admits with the treaty signed that he knows what this meant for the commander. For some, it will be a very heavy price to pay. Burr reaches the ship and scrambles up a rope ladder. The commander notices the Bushido blade in his holster as Burr passes him on the way to Perry. Perry laughs in Burr's face and says, fuck this dumb sword, we got our predatory treaty signed already, instantly forgetting apparently that the Shogun's commander is duty-bound to commit suicide unless this sword is returned. He doesn't even say like, oh, where's the guy? We should make sure the guy knows you have that. He's just like, fuck that guy. He knew what he was getting into, basically. That's what he says when he sees the boat going. He's like, that guy chose his fate. These people kill each other for no reason. Fuck him. That's so, really so that's he, really what so he said. So as he goes away on the boat, he doesn't know that they have the sword. No, he, he the Shogun's commander knows because he saw Burr bring it on board. Well, then then he won't die because he would tell right, the Shogun he won't die. that they. But, but as it's far a weird as commander, line to say that he chose his fate, then 
Right, but Commodore Perry doesn't know that he knows because he left Perry's office oh. and then he got in the ship to leave and Perry doesn't know that he saw the Bushido blade on his way out. Okay. So he's like, I th- it's a funny prank to him that this guy has to go home and kill himself now, but that he got the treaty signed, so it doesn't matter. The Bushido blade. Ha! <laughs> Silly damn thing. We didn't even need it. Treaty was just signed. I really wanted Burr to just cut off Perry's head here. <laughs> but we just cut back to Hawk and Tomo and Johnson at the lighthouse. Johnson appears injured, and as the last of Yamato's men move in to avenge their fallen master, Hawk blows some explosives on the front side of the lighthouse and then uses a lever with Johnson to tip the structure forward and crush the remaining samurai. Amazingly, they crush every last man with their structure fire. Mm-hmm. Perry invites Bird to dinner once he's in a proper uniform. Instead, Burr stabs the Bushido blade into the deck of the ship and walks away. The next morning, Hawk and Johnson see the ships leaving and probably wonder to themselves why they didn't bother to get back to it before it left for America. (laughs) They decide instead to live the rest of their lives in a burned down lighthouse. (laughs) I I thought it would have been funny if all the American ships had sunk in the night because they couldn't gauge where the rocks were after the lighthouse burned down. (laughs) Well, no, the lighthouse burning would would be the perfect thing to gauge. Yeah, for a while, and then it goes out. All the Russians crash into the shore. (laughs) (laughs) We get another look at the Hokusai wave art and then credits roll. But did you notice anything weird about these credits? Each character has two actors' names. Right. And I thought at first that maybe everybody was dubbed, but there were voice actors listed for Mike Starr and James Earl Jones. So I think that the second actors are doing the foreign dub for the German version. Right. That makes sense. They look like German names to me. But the voices that we're hearing in this movie are in English. Yeah. And the subtitles are in Portuguese, (laughs) except for the unsubtitled lines, which are in Japanese. So it's that simple, folks. I think that this is an indication that we probably shouldn't have bothered watching this movie. No, I think that's probably true. We didn't have to interrupt the blockbuster series with this Rankin Bass made for TV garbage. (laughs) But whatever. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I, the thumbs down for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I, I, the only part of the movie I liked was was Mike Starr wrestling those guys. It's like, okay. You know, like, like I, I thought they were going to find him and he was going to be like, sh- they were going to be like showering him with gifts and things yeah. like that. And the town is like, oh, hey, you know, I'm doing all right here. Yeah. I, I did like the the lighthouse fight only when she throws the sword through Yamato's yeah. neck. That part was cool. But everything else was just, oh, my sword hit your sword. Or my mm. sword went through your belly. It's the same two moves yeah, for every like, single attack. F- yeah, for some reason. I, 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 was thinking, I was thinking this. I'm like, how do you screw up a samurai movie? Like... I don't I don't understand how you could do that because like I feel like they would be innately awesome. I feel like the way you screw up a samurai movie is you take out 12 minutes worth of arms coming off. Yeah. Well, and you add a bunch of US soldiers for no reason or Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't I don't understand half of the point of this movie. If if he's so sure that the sword doesn't matter and he can just talk the guy into signing the treaty anyway, why did We do any of this? Why did Perry send <laughs> men out? Why didn't you just let uh, Prince Ito get killed and then say okay well I guess the sword didn't matter and that guy died for your Shogun's embarrassment or whatever so we're good he he tried to kill the commander anyway yeah because he was just like just sign the treaty I don't care if you have to kill yourself so three thumbs down yeah this is a pointless movie there's no reason to watch it um what are we thinking letterboxd mine's not as low as you probably want it to be uh I have it at 63 Okay. Which puts it below Tuck Everlasting, but above Nice Dreams. 
Okay. Above Nice Dreams. I really didn't like. Yeah, nice you don't dreams. like Cheech and Chong though. Yeah, but like, ugh, this movie was like. But Nice Dreams had no plot. This this at least had a plot. Well, I. Yeah. I yeah, guess. I prefer no plot in this case then. Uh, I have it at seventy nine out of eighty one. Okay. It is below Image of the Beast and above Secondhand Hearts. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's pretty good. Um, I have it in 80 out of 81. It's below Happy Birthday to Me and just above Just a Gigolo. <laughs> just above Just a Gigolo. Our director here was Suganobi Katani. He's credited as Tom Katani, probably because he hated the movie. Just prior to this, Katani had directed The Last Dinosaur, another Rankin-Bass Japanese co-production starring Richard Boone. Writer William Overgaard previously wrote The Last Dinosaur for Rankin-Bass, and later he wrote for Rankin-Bass animated series Silverhawks and Thundercats. <gasps> Silverhawks. I didn't realize those were both Rankin-Bass shows, but apparently they are. The music here was from Maury Laws. He composed Mad Monster Party for Rankin-Bass. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. He also did The Hobbit and Return of the King TV movies for Rankin-Bass and The Wind in the Willows. And he also worked on The Last Dinosaur. Cinematographer Soji Ueda was a regular collaborator of Akira Kurosawa's, having DP'd Kagemusha last season, and later ran and dreams. He also worked on The Last Dinosaur. Wait, this was the same DP as Kagemusha? I know, right? Why? What? I think they, they must have just, you know, been paying him in food and credit. I But, like, it looks so bad it, compared to that Well, it's movie. also a bad DVD transfer. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Like, yeah, it wasn't a good transfer, but I just, there, there was nothing special about the camera worker well we'll seek out the 4k blu-ray no thank you i'm good the editor yoshitami kuroiwa also edited godzilla versus hedora terror of mecha godzilla the return of godzilla and my favorite godzilla 1985 i was not familiar with much of his non-godzilla work except for bye bye jupiter which was adapted from sakyo komatsu's novel the same author whose work we saw adapted into kinji fukasaku's virus day of resurrection for a patreon minisode earlier this season he also edited The Last Dinosaur. Everybody worked on The Last Dinosaur. Denver, the last dinosaur. He's my friend and a whole lot more. That was improvised, oh folks. <laughs> Richard Boone played Commodore Matthew Perry. Boone is best known for his 225-episode run as the lead character of Have Gun, Will Travel, 28 of which he directed himself. Have Gun, Will Travel, reads the card of a man. I don't know that one as well as Denver, The Last Dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> He's John Fane in Big Jake. He voiced Smog in the 77 Hobbit TV movie for Rankin Bass, and he was Maston Thrust Jr. in The Last Dinosaur. His second to last credit was for William Reichert's Winter Kills, which we mentioned in our Minnesota review of Reichert's The American Success Company, earlier this year for a Patreon minisode. This was his last credit. Toshiro Mifune is an incredibly prolific Japanese actor and longtime collaborator of Akira Kurosawa's on films like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Rashomon, Throne of Blood, Hidden Fortress, among many others. As I mentioned in our production notes, he appeared in Red Sun in 1971 and the Shogun miniseries in 1980. He was also in Winter Kills with Boone and would follow this production, by appearing in Steven Spielberg's 1941, though that film would hit theaters first. He's also in Inchon, which gets a review from us next season. Mike Starr played Bosun Cave Johnson. He's Georgie Weiss in Ed Wood. He's Frankie in Miller's Crossing. And he's one of the henchmen in Sidney Lumet's 1999 Gloria remake. But he's probably best known for his role as the gas man in Dumb and Dumber, who is murdered by the titular idiots 
when they accidentally poison him after a chili pepper prank gone wrong. Timothy Patrick Murphy played midshipman Robin Burr. He's Spencer Langley in 54 episodes of something called Search for Tomorrow, but not much else I recognized. Frank Converse played Captain Lawrence Hawk. He was Virgil Earp in 1967's Hour of the Gun. He had short runs on a bunch of soap operas, but, you know, he's, he's actually like a decent-looking guy, and he can deliver a line. I'm yeah. surprised he didn't work more. William Ross played Perry's aide, mostly overseas editing credits, including shows like The Real Ghostbusters and ALF. I think he actually lived in Japan and worked in, like, translation and localization of stuff. Uh, there was a credit for supervising editor. Oh, okay. Uh, for Ann V. Coates. Oh, uh you know multiple academy award nominee winner uh honorary winner uh not that that's, she was nominated that, in our in our 80 y- yeah exactly categories. for the elephant man yeah. uh she was nominated for lawrence of arabia beckett in the line of fire and out of sight uh but yeah she's credited as uh editorial supervisor interesting bin amatsu played baron zen that's the guy who stole the sword didn't recognize a lot of his credits but he does show up in the bad news bears go to japan Shinichi Chiba, or Sonny Chiba, is Prince Ito. We saw him last in a minisode for Kinji Fukasaku's Virus. He's in The Street Fighter and Return of the Street Fighter. He's also the Keanu Reeves of a movie called Bullet Train, which was essentially remade as Speed in the U.S. He shows up as Horikoshi in Iron Eagle 3. He's Uncle Kamada in Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. And he shows up in Battle Royale 2 as Shinji's uncle, and then perhaps most famously in Kill Bill, as Hattori Hanzo, crafter of the blade Beatrix Kiddo uses to slice through her kill list. We also just lost him a few months ago to COVID. Yeah. So that's a bummer. James Earl Jones played the prisoner. His best known role might be a three-way tie for voicing Darth Vader, Mufasa, and Eddie Murphy's father in Coming to America. I was going to say, I thought, I thought it was going to be the CNN. This <laughs> no, is I'm CNN. Not, I'm not going to do all three of the cloud heads from the Simpsons episode. <laughs> He's also in Hunt for Red October. He narrates Judge Dredd. He's in Field of Dreams. He made his feature film debut in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Is he Bat Guano in that? No, he's, uh, his name is like Lozar or something mm. like that. He's one of the guys on the, on the plane with, with, with Slim, with Slim Pickens. Pickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laura Gemser played Tomo. She's our second actress of the year to have played the title character in multiple Emmanuel films. Do you guys recall the last film we covered to feature an Emmanuel? Um, the Private Lessons? Yeah. That's right. That's... Sylvia Christel in Private Lessons. Laura Gemser also shows up in Bruno Mattei's Violence in a Women's Prison and Joe D'Amato's Endgame. She also has a dozen costume design credits, the most famous among them being Troll 2. Ugh. She designed the costumes for Troll 2. That is weird. Mako played Injiro. He's Herbert in Battle Creek Brawl last year, and he's back later this year for Under the Rainbow and An Eye for an Eye. Later, he shows up in Conan the Barbarian as the narrator and wizard, and returns as the wizard for Conan the Destroyer. He's Kanemitsu in Robocop 3. He narrates the main title of Dexter's Lab, and he's probably best known for his voice work as Aku on Samurai Jack or Uncle Iroh on Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. One of his final voice acting jobs was as Splinter, in the 2007 TMNT film. And today is actually his birthday as we're recording. Were he still around, he would be turning 88 years young today. So happy birthday, Mako. Tetsuro Tanba played Lord Yamato. He played Tiger Tanaka in You Only Live Twice, but that was the only other credit that I recognized from his work. Those are all the credits I have. 
I think that's everything for the Bushido Blade. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you all for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Cannonball Run, which IMDb describes like so. A wide variety of eccentric competitors participate in a wild and illegal cross-country road race. However, the eccentric entrants will do anything to win the road race, including low-down dirty tricks. We leave you now with the trailer for The Cannonball Run. This is the story of an average guy and a beautiful girl. Hi. Don't tell me your name. I'll just call you Beauty. You must be a sensitive person. I bet you're a fan of Rod McEwen's. I try to be. And his best friend. I am Captain Chaos. Been a cop long? And a family doctor. Leash. Come on right here. And how they all set out one day in an ambulance from New York to California at 150 miles per hour. California, here we come. But they aren't the only ones. Because this is the Cannonball Run. America's illegal Grand Prix. And it doesn't matter how you get there. It's who gets there first. Burt Reynolds is the defending champion. On his team, Farrah Fawcett. Are you one of those volleyballers? Cannonballers. Dom DeLuise. And Jack Elam. And here comes the competition. Yeah, hurry up, you little... Dean Martin. We happen to be in a race. Sammy Davis Jr. You, shorty. Where'd you get all that jewelry? Take a layup. Layup. Mel Tillis and Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Jackie Chan. <laughs> and Roger Moore as himself. I'm Roger Moore. <laughs> Roger Moore. <laughs> all of them. Reckless. <laughs> We're in kind of a hurry, so if you could just bless it a little bit. Unscrupulous. Oh, I gotta bless her. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. She's a Zen Buddhist. Desperate character. By land. By sea. By air. They'll do anything. Drive anything say anything it's hard to understand you when i called you i was doing 140 miles an hour and stop at nothing normally i drive right around the speed limit we all make mistakes miss but 160 to win the cannonball run yeah we're looking good come on faster cannonball run the only movie to get over 200 tickets before it even opens Perfect.